0: Today we begin to look at chapter 4 of the book of James, as we continue to see how James is instructing believers, and so turn with me to James chapter 4 and verses 1 through 3. James 4, 1 through 3, and as you turn there, someone standing between you and your greatest desire. So what do you do? How do you handle that? When you want something and someone is in the way of what you want, what do you do? Uh, Well, if you're King Ahab, you go to your room and you pout and you whine and you cry. And then your wife comes in and says, why are you? Why are you so upset? What's going on? And you tell the story. Well, and if you're his wife, Jezebel, well, you make a plan to get your husband what he wants. Uh, You orchestrate the murder of the one who would refuse the request of the king. And we see that in 1 Kings 21. And I'll read for us verses 11 through 14. 1 Kings 21, 11 through 14. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel sent word to them, as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people, And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. And then the king with a bit of pep in his step goes down to claim what is not his. Uh, he gets the vineyard he wants. He gets the vineyard he coveted. And the person standing in between him and what he wants is dealt with. And granted, we all don't have that kind of authority, right? When somebody stands in between what we want, uh, we don't always have the authority of the government to go ahead and dispense with them. Right? We have consequences. King Ahab did not have immediate earthly consequences, though he certainly had Uh, heavenly consequences Uh, we don't have the power of the government to be able to get what we want but again what do you do when someone stops you from getting what you want what do you do you may not murder them literally you may not orchestrate their death but when you covet what do you do today in our passage james begins to confront more worldly practices within the churches. There are those who want, and in their not receiving what they want, they sin. And so I want us to see today that James instructs us that sinful dissensions within the church arise when self is first. Sinful dissensions within the church arise when self is first. So let's look at James 4, 1 through 3. And this here is the word of the Lord. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And this is the word of the Lord. James is writing to the churches in and around Palestine and Syria. And his, his pastoral concern, something that we see time and time again throughout the book of James, throughout this letter, is that he wants them to be holy gods. He wants them to be holy gods. He wants them to have a wholehearted devotion, wholehearted obedience to God. He has written to them that they would seek God in all things. That their religion might be proved true and not worthless. That they would do good works. That they would be wise and controlled in the use of their tongue, as we see in chapter 3. In the prior section of verses, just before this, in verses 13 to 18, we see James writes about two kinds of wisdom. And there's the true, there's the heavenly, there's the righteous, there's the peacemaking wisdom from God. And then there's the worldly wisdom that shows itself in bitter jealousy and envy and covetousness and in selfish promotion. And the conclusion of that passage is verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The undercurrent there is James is saying. The church should be united in peacemaking not not disunited in quarrels and fights. So we find ourselves in trouble because as we come to our text today, he isn't addressing a, a peacemaking church. He's addressing churches, Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ who have division and selfish infighting. So we move into a new chapter, but we're really not leaving the the themes of chapter 3 behind. We're continuing to work them out. We're seeing a different aspect of them. And again, we see this issue of the tongue come up because rather than using our tongue to promote love and peace within the church, we're using it for fights and quarrels. And so we come to this issue Let's see first in our text, untamed desires in verse 1. Firstly, untamed desires. And James poses a couple questions for us. He says first, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And he's saying, what causes these wars in your midst? So we see something of the situation to which To which he is addressing something of what is going on in these churches. There are wars within the church. There are fights. There are quarrels. There are battles going on. And we could ask this point more, or ask this question more generally. Why do wars happen? Why, why Why do wars arise? And it's simplistic, a simplistic answer for us, but is, we could say, need or want wars arise because of need or want one country needs or wants something that another country has sometimes these resources are more intangible prestige power public image right they they want that i think uh without being too much of a prognosticator of current uh, political situation but there's war in ukraine russia doesn't need the resources of the ukraine What do they want? Power, prestige, and public image. Sometimes the resources that they want from, that that a country wants from another country are tangible, right? They're, They're physical things. Oil, gold, gemstones, cattle, right? If we went old school, right? Cattle, those kinds of things. And as we move this question into more personal terms, right, As we move to within the church, why do wars, why do fights, why do quarrels arise within the church? And the first thing that we have to understand is it could be divisions and disunity happen within a church. It could be because there is an actual reason for a fight. Just as in the wars around us, right, sometimes we have to go to war sometimes it's necessary for a country to go to war against another country especially as great evils are being committed we sometimes have the moral duty to step in and to stop it and so it is within the church sometimes there is a reason for an actual fight we could turn to jude the book of jude and verse 3 tells us jude 3 tells us beloved Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I, find it, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude writes because he knows that there are false teachers entering into the fellowship of the saints, and their purpose is to destroy the church, not to build it up, to build themselves up, not to build the church up. And true ministers of the gospel, true teachers, work to edify the church, work to build it up, work to present it mature, uh, present the saints as mature in Christ, but not so for false teachers. And there are times when it is incumbent upon us to contend for the faith. We could go back some 500 years, for instance, to the time of the Reformation, right? the time of the Protestant Reformation. That was a time when it was necessary to contend for the faith because the church at that time, the Roman Catholic Church, was preaching a gospel that is not the gospel, a gospel that is accursed. Let me go ahead and say they haven't improved upon their gospel today, despite some of the times that we see evangelical leaders and Protestant leaders uh, trying to join back up with the Catholic Church. The issues are still the same. But there was necessary. Men fought to free the church from the tyranny of worldly wisdom. And this is so throughout church history. There have been times when men and women have had to stand against error and contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And God grant that we would be such men and women of faith. As we consider the American church, There are certainly plenty of fights that need to be had over right doctrine and right practice, believing in the truth and walking in holiness. But as we consider contending for the faith, I think there are at least two things we need to discuss, think about. Firstly, does this mean that we take up swords and charge the enemy? Now, granted, uh, we probably wouldn't take up swords, but, you know, do we get our, out our AR-15s and form a well-armed militia to go and fight against the enemy of doctrinal error? The answer to that is, no, we don't do that. Although I see some smiles and they pro- probably, right, right, pleasing thing to think. No, we don't do that, though. But James does use some really charged language here in this passage, right? He's talking about fights and quarrels, wars. Like This is, this is military battle that he's talking about here. But we really ought to take this language as metaphorical, right? Uh, even within, within this passage, within these, these fights within the church, uh, cause he talks about murders, for instance, and so are we to say that the church members were actually murdering other church members? No, it's, it's metaphorical, right? It seems best to take it metaphorically. Um, the kind of words that these are verbal disagreements, the kind of words uh, that we more often see in the halls of Congress, right, than we ever should see within the church, um, right? Th- these are verbal disagreements filled with caustic remarks, not genteel debate. So that's that's part of what we see here. Um, James has already written about how the use of our tongue to cut and curse is out of bounds for what we should use it for as a believer, James 3, 9 through 10. James 3, talking about the tongue here. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So when we talk about contending for the faith, when we talk about uh, what what we're doing here, We're talking about using our words to correct, to admonish, to rebuke. We're not talking about taking up our sword and chasing down other Christians or so-called Christians. We're talking about using our words. Does this mean then, when we talk about contending for the faith, that another important question we have to answer is, does this mean we stand up and shout against anyone who disagrees with our theological position? Again, the answer is no, we don't. We have to realize that there are areas of genuine disagreement between the elect of God. There are doctrines in which we can diverge in our views and still have eternal life. There is a qualitative difference between our understanding of the nature of Christ Jesus as the Son of God, the manner in which God elects his people, and if and when there will be a rapture. Uh, There are first order issues of the gospel. So what I mean by that, there are first order issues that if we disagree on these issues, we're talking about the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, right? To say that Christ Jesus is not the son of God, isn't just to say we believe a little bit differently and we're just a different type of Christian. No, we're talking about someone who is a Christian and someone who is not a Christian and understand that there are um cults uh popular cults uh, Mormonism jehovah's witness that call themselves Christians but don't believe in Christ as as Christ Jesus as the Son of God as divine as one of the persons of the Trinity they're not Christian they may go by that name they may claim it but they're not all right, so those are first-order issues. If we disagree on first-order issues, we're talking about the difference between Christian and non-Christian. There are also second-order issues of doctrine that don't separate believers from unbelievers, but do separate us in how we gather together. So we're talking about the kind of differences that lead to different denominations. We still agree on the fundamentals of the gospel, but it probably means we won't partner closely with them yeah, uh, in, in any in any work of of substance of gospel substance, um, baptism is one of those doctrines that we can uh, that can be a second order issue. So baptism, we can disagree on the mode of baptism, and that's a second order issue, right? Some some churches believe you can sprinkle. Uh, we Baptists, you got to be dunked, right? You got to be immersed. Uh, that's the meaning of the word, and we could go into all that, but I won't, I won't beat the Baptist drum too loudly this morning. But, but right, we can disagree on that, and we can still be Christians, but again, we may not be part of that church. They may not be part of our church, but it doesn't mean that they're not a Christian. It doesn't mean we're not a Christian. Um, understand, though, I'll put a little caveat to that. There are some issues about baptism that do, that, that do I think, rise to first-order issues. If you believe that baptism is necessary for salvation, I think that's a first-order issue. That's not true. Nowhere in the scripture we see that. What saves you? Christ Jesus, the grace of God. That saves you. Grace through faith. That saves you. Not baptism. Sorry, just to put a caveat to that. But there are also third-order issues. And these are the kind of issues that we can be in the same church, sitting on the same pew, or the same row of chairs, and... And be fine. We can disagree on these things and be fine. Uh, these are important issues, but lesser issues. They shouldn't separate us from being able to fellowship together. Uh, these are things uh, again. What we believe about the end times are are, are some of these things. Are you all millennial, premillennial, postmillennial? And if you don't know what any of that means, that's okay too. See, Th- these are third order issues. Are you going to be raptured, pre-trib, post-trib? Mid-trib, again, if you don't know what that means, it's okay. You don't have to know what that means in order to be in Christ. It's good to know what it means. It's good to understand these things, and it's right. We always want to seek to understand more about God in the scripture. But we can disagree on these things and be in the same church, and it's okay. It's okay. Um, this, this, what I've kind of just described right there, by the way, is called theological triage. And you can use that. If you search for that, uh, you could uh, look that up and see a little bit more about that. There's some books out there that you could uh, look up. Um, Al Mohler has an article that kind of talks through these issues. Um, So just as a um, if you want to study that further. So all this to go back to when someone disagrees with our theological position, one of the things we have to do is evaluate how important is that issue? How important is that position? is it a matter of first order is it a matter of second order third order fourth order right Where does it lie uh, because that de- determines then how how upset should we get about it? What should we do about it how How involved do we get in correcting that issue? Added to this is the importance um added to this importance of that particular doctrine as it comes to the, those third order, first order, second order issues, is the proximity of the false teacher to us. So again, that's another thing we have to evaluate. How close is this false teacher to us? That determines our response level. Right? If it's a matter of, it's within the church we are a member of, and there is a false teacher in the church we are a member of, teaching falsely, right? Teaching false doctrine. How do we handle that? We speak up. We have to do something about it. We can't just let it lie. We can't just ignore it and move on. We have to address the matter. And here is a matter of our love for, another, uh, for one another as well. We need to make sure that we understood what they said. So let me just go ahead and say, before you get up and shout someone down for being a false teacher, you better be certain you understood what they said. You better be certain that you have heard correctly and understood correctly. Why? Because how often do we have disagreements with other people because we misheard what they said or we misunderstood what they said? Or maybe they just simply misspoke and they will be quick to say, you know what? That's not at all what I meant. I didn't, I didn't mean to, to say that at all. If that's why what, what you heard, I'm I'm sorry and I need to correct that. Right? So... We have to have charity towards one another, love towards one another, and understand that even when we're addressing false teachers. Now, if the teacher is false and they've proved to be false, what they have said to be false, I think you could go to the scripture and you see some pretty clear indication about uh, what you should do to such persons, right? How, how, what level of response you should have. So the proximity though, going back to that, if it's within the church, we have to act. If it's the church down the street, We may not do much if we have a personal relationship with someone who attends that church maybe we warn them and say do you know that the church you go to that the that the pastor that this teacher that that teaches there that they believe this about jesus where do you see that in the scripture should you really be going to a church that that believes that about the scripture right we have to have those conversations um but again here we have to be careful because we can quickly run into gossiping and slandering if we have failed to understand that, that teacher, that statement, right, that doctrinal position clearly. So again, everything we do we have to be cautious and concerning. But when we know it's time to act, we need to act. right? If there's a church on the other side of the country that has false doctrine, false teaching, we probably don't do anything. Because we don't have any influence, we don't have any ability to do anything. It's not that we don't care, but they're outside of our realm of influence. And so we don't take up arms, load up a bus, and go pick it outside the church. That's not helpful. It's not helpful. We have to think critically through these kinds of situations. We have to think charitably, always looking to prove our assumptions wrong. So notice what I said there. Our assumptions, not their words. Prove our assumptions wrong, not them. But we do have to contend for the faith. But I say all this, and this is not the situation James is dealing with. But I say that, I, I say all this because this is the backdrop of the framework we need to understand. When it comes to fights and quarrels within the church, when it comes to wars within the church, there are times when we do have to enter into contention. Confronting. That does happen. But that's not what James is dealing with here. And as it was in James's day, I sadly say it is much the same in our own. Why are there fights and quarrels in the church today? Why do we war within the church against one another? Not because of doctrinal fidelity. Not because there's issues of of theological importance that we have to debate, discuss, and come to a conclusion about but sinful pleasures, untamed desires, right? That's the point of the second question. Is it not this? And so the way James phrases that is, this is the reason why there are fights and quarrels, that your passions are at war within you. And that word passions there, or in your version, it might say lust, uh, or it might say pleasures. And that's The Greek word there for passions in the ESV is the word from which we derive hedonistic, right? So if you know what a hedonist is, pleasures, you understand a little bit what he's getting at, right? This is all about pleasures and whose pleasures? Our pleasures. This is about selfish sinfulness at its worst. And it's broader than just sexual immorality. So don't just think in terms of sexual immorality here that he's talking about. He's talking about all those selfish desires that come into us. It's all kind of selfish want. Envisioned here is an adult version of what happens in the playground at school. I want that toy. Give it to me. It's mine. Right. And as much as we see that in a little child, this is the adult version of that. This is not passion for the truth, but passion for oneself, not for godly desires, but worldly pleasures. This is not self-sacrifice, but self-aggrandizement. These untamed desires become unfulfilled desires. And so let's see that next in verse two, unfulfilled desires. James writes, you desire and do not have so you murder you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel you do not have because you do not ask right he calls out the church here for being out of step with the truth and the reality is twofold they desire don't have they covet and can't obtain right so they desire they want and they covet what does it mean to covet you want what someone else has you look at what they have and say, I I want that for myself. And in both cases, the desire, the want, whether it's of something else or something someone else has, they don't get it. And so what do these do when they don't get what they want? They murder, they fight and they quarrel. Again, uh, actual murder taking place in the church is unlikely and One of the reasons for that, right? one of the logical reasons we could just immediately jump out and say is if Christians were murdering Christians, I think James would have addressed that a little bit sooner in his letter than uh, towards the end of it. Uh, The other thing is I think he would use a little bit more direct language and a little bit uh, greater uh, greater language of consequence than to just say, you murder and, and just gloss over it, right? Murder is a pretty big deal. Uh, so it's probably not as though uh, the church pews are stained with the blood of the slain. But how are we to understand this then? Well, James is writing from a tradition that understands that frustrated desires do lead to murder. Go back to what we opened up with out of the book of Kings. Right? A frustrated desire to have a vineyard led to an actual death of somebody, right? False witness and murder. So it's not outside the bounds of possibility. Frustrated desires do lead to murder. We could go back to the first murder in Genesis chapter 4. Or Genesis chapter 4. Cain wants what Abel has. And we could probably have a long discussion there about what exactly is it that Abel has. I think one of the, the preeminent things is he has the acceptance of God. And Cain wants that. So, what does Cain do? Genesis 4 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Cain wanted what Abel had, and in order to obtain it, murdered we would do well to remember the words of Jesus in Matthew five twenty one through 22 You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. What's Jesus' point there? He points out that, that anger anger is murder in your heart anger with opportunity time leads to murder murder doesn't just happen suddenly right you don't just wake up one morning and go you know i could really go to murder that person today you know just out of the blue Uh, if that does happen there's probably something more seriously wrong with you and uh, talk to me afterwards and we'll get you some help. Right, But murder doesn't just happen suddenly. No, murder starts with frustrated desire. It starts with jealousy, envy, coveting. It starts with looking at someone else and thinking that you deserve what they have more than they deserve it. And well, maybe, just maybe, you'll take it for yourself. It's yours by right after all. They don't deserve it. I deserve that. Desire, anger, murder, it's a common thread. It's a well-worn path. I think that's what James is pointing out for us here, right? So he says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You may not have actually done it yet, but by your words, by the verbal disagreements, by the fights and quarrels, by everything that is within you, by what is welling up inside of you, if it is left unchecked, it will certainly end in murder. You may not have actually committed murder yet, but you've done it in your heart. And the disunity in this community, which, by the way, is a bit of an oxymoron. This, the, the disunity in this community has at least risen to verbal wars. That's the second part there. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You're at war with one another. You, You speak words of hate and malice towards one another. And in all this talk, we might really think that, wow, they're a really messed up church. I'm glad I'm not them. Glad I'm not part of a church like that. But before we quick to dismiss the Word of God as not relevant to ourselves, we better examine our own situation more closely. Because listen, I've been in church meetings where verbal disagreements between church members were sharp. I've been in church meetings where people get up and storm out in the middle of a business meeting. This is not theory. It happens. It really happens. And let me go ahead and tell you, the disagreement wasn't about matters of the faith. It was a matter about trite issues. It was a matter about power and position within the church. I want to be a deacon. I don't think you're fit to be a deacon. Well, then I'm going to go out of here and I'm going to tell everybody what a terrible place this church is. That's something that actually happened. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. But what about ourselves? For you, brothers and sisters in Christ, you need to consider how much is it that your self-centered desires rule you? How often is it that your unfulfilled desires, and maybe even for good things, lead to sharp words with others? How often is it that you want and don't get what you want and so... You murder, you fight and quarrel. What do you want? It's a simple question, but it reveals something of the concerns of your heart. What do you want? What do you want within the church? What do you want for this church? What do you want for yourself in this church? And if thinking through those questions makes you uncomfortable, good. Made me a little uncomfortable writing them. Because the reality is this. The church is not about what you want. And it's not about what I want either. Unless you think that this is all turning back to me. Your concern in being here should not be about what you get from our time together. Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Listen to who Christ Jesus is, and listen to who who Paul says we should be like. Listen to this. Listen closely. Verse six, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. And really stop and think about that for a moment, because I think it's we write the, probably a phrase we've heard before. we see it in the scripture, and we might just gloss over it. Who is Christ Jesus? He is the Son of God. He is God. He's the creator of the universe. Everything, everything in creation exists to serve Christ Jesus. Realize this, that Christ Jesus could have commanded all of creation to bow to him. Every person he came into contact with could have been forced to bow the knee to him. Even the rocks should have cried out Hosanna. But Christ Jesus not, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. And as the master, so the student. That means you, Christian, are to serve others. Right, Paul continues in Philippians 2 and tells us that there is coming a day when every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father, but in his earthly ministry, he came gentle and lowly in heart. He was meek. He was a servant. And if you think, if you think that you deserve to be served by others, if you think the church should serve you and your desires, You've missed Christ. Dissensions within the church arise when self is first. But true wisdom, wisdom from above, produces peace. True wisdom seeks to show love to others at the expense of self. And here's the thing, too. James points out. You don't have. Why? because you do not ask the things that you do want you know why you don't have them you don't ask god you don't ask god you don't go to god and say god would you give me the good desires of my heart matthew 7 7 through 11 matthew 7 7 through 11 But this is not unqualified asking. So let's see thirdly, unanswered desires, unanswered desires in verse three. Because James points out. Right. He says you don't have because you don't ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Right. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. God gives good gifts. James says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. Ask and it will be given to you. You don't have because you don't ask. And you ask and don't receive. Because what you ask for are selfish desires. Right? Those pleasures. Selfish pleasures. Their desires are unanswered in the churches to which James is writing is because that what they desire is sinful and selfish. They are not desires for good things. They are desires for sinful desires for sinful purposes. What he is in essence is saying is you ask for the grace of God to waste it on your evil desires. And do you not see even in the phrase of that how wrong that is, right? You ask for the grace of God for your sinful desires. For things that are passing away. Do you really think that God should answer you and give you the evil that you want, brothers and sisters? John writes in 1 John 5, 1 John 5 verses 14 through 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will he hears us and if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask we know that we have the request that we have asked of him if we ask according to the will of god if we ask for good and godly things if we ask in the name of jesus which is not a magical incantation that we attach to whatever we say Right? When we when we talk about that, praying in the name of Jesus, we're not talking about magical incantation. This is not hocus pocus. Right? To ask in the name of Jesus is to ask for the things that Jesus himself would ask for. So by the way, I would just say in your prayers a good evaluation for you would be this. Would Christ Jesus pray for this thing? Could we see Christ Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane lifting up this prayer to God that I'm about to pray? That's a good filter tool, by the way. If we ask God in in accordance with his will for good and godly things in the name of Jesus, we can expect to receive such things. God answers prayers. But if your prayers are located in the pleasures of your body, don't expect an affirmative answer. You can expect no such grace because the Lord Jesus is not a, a magic genie. God is not a magic genie here to give us whatever we wish for. We don't put in a token, pull the lever and go, OK, I get whatever I want now. No, he is sovereign Lord to whom we ought pray what it says in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right. Your name be holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. As so in heaven, be it so on earth. And notice the pronouns there. And that's a popular thing in our do- in our day and age to talk about pronouns. So let's talk about pronouns here. What pronouns do we see in the Lord's Prayer? Your, your, your. Notice it's not I. It's not me. It's not my kingdom come. Not my will be done. It's not my name be holy. It's God's, right? God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. And even though James here in these verses doesn't give us uh, an explicit answer as to what our response to these things should be. He is getting there. As we walk through the rest of of chapter 4, we'll see that he calls the church to repentance, to turn away from their sin, and to turn back to God. But implicitly we see here that such dissension, disunity, disagreement in the community is out of bounds for what it means to be church, for what it means to be the people of God for what it means to be a brother or sister in Christ. As he says about the tongue springing forth blessing and cursing, we could say here, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. James writes to a people that have in many ways placed themselves first. Their desire is to be first, to have all of their hearts' wants to be filled, to want and want and want. And he confronts these passions, these desires, these sinful pleasures because they stand against the very nature of what it means to be a believer about who they are called to be. And this is where it gets personal for you, brothers and sisters in Christ, because in our world, in our culture, especially, it is natural to get what you want. It is natural to want whatever it is we feel we need. We are told in so many ways that we should get what we want, right? Be true to the, whatever your heart wants, go for it. Seek out, right? Fulfill the desires of your heart. Follow all of its inclinations. Be true to yourself, no matter what the consequences to others. And if they get in the way, if they stand in the way between you and what you desire, Push them aside. Fight them. Quarrel them. Get them out of the way. Um, all right, we could go, for instance, to what happens during Thanksgiving, uh, right after Thanksgiving on Black Friday. If someone stands between you and the Black Friday deal, shoot them. Kill them. Right? That's not even a joke. That's the sad thing. Right, that, That's not even a joke. That, that happens. That's what our culture believes that's what our culture that is what is enshrined in the values of our culture, but church it shouldn't be within the fellowship of believers. division is common out there, but it should not even be entertained in here and what this means for you is that when divisions arise, when your inclination to want arises, when the church seems to get away, get in the way of your selfish desires. You must tame your desires. You must do what God says in Romans 8 put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit. Because you're called to peace. You're called to be peacemakers. You're called to loving sacrifice. You are called to consider others as more important than yourself. And for some of you, that means that you need to go to God and seek His forgiveness. For some of you, that means you you realize that the things that you have been wanting in your heart, and understand it may be for desires of of items, objects, material goods, or it may be immaterial things. Maybe it's a, a position of respect that you think you deserve. Maybe it's power or attention. Right? Maybe it's money and material goods. Whatever it may be. You need to go to God and ask for forgiveness. God, forgive me for the selfish desires that I have put above you and your people. It may well mean that you need to go to your brother and sister in Christ and apologize. If you've been at war, if you have fought and quarreled, you need to apologize to them for the fights you've started. And just as a a statement here, right? Jesus says, if you're going to offer a sacrifice and you're there and you're in the middle of it, and you remember that your brother has something against you, he says, stop what you're doing. Go and be reconciled to your brother, then come back and sacrifice. And understand too, the context of that statement. If you have traveled from where you live to Jerusalem and it's taken you days to get there, and your brother is back in the town you traveled from, what he is saying is it is better for you in that moment not to be a pragmatist, not to say, well, I'm here now, I'll finish the sacrifice now, and then I'll go back when I go back home in a few days, then I'll be reconciled, and that'll be good. No, he says, stop what you're doing, go be reconciled, then come back. Do you you understand what, what is at stake there? You can't worship God when you're stuck in your sin and you're refusing to repent. Right? There's a block there. So for some of you, you need to repent. For all of us, it may mean that we, we, we need to guard our fellowship. For all of us, it means we must deal with disagreement and division when it comes up. For all of us, it means that we must be willing to humble ourselves. But there are some of you who are listening who need to realize that your fighting and quarreling arises from you because you are not in Christ Jesus. You need to understand that you will never have peace with God and you won't have much peace with others while your sin problem is not dealt with. And understand too that you do have a sin problem. You, friend, are a sinner in rebellion against a holy God, and the cost of your rebellion. ...will be your very life, your eternal life. You will stand before God one day, and it may be much sooner than you think. And you will give an account for all that you have thought and said and done. And for all these things you will be judged. For these things you will be repaid by the consuming fiery wrath of the holy God. And yet there is still time. If you yet draw breath, there is time... For you to seek the forgiveness of God. There is one who died on a cross for the sake of sinners such as yourself. There is a person who has made possible peace between you and God. Christ Jesus came to this earth, lived the life that you could never live, died the death you should die, rose from the grave to defeat death and sin and ascended to the right hand of the father where he waits to come again. And to gather his people to his side. And if you believe in him. If you trust in his work. If you call out to him. You will be saved. You can be forgiven all of your sins. You can stand at peace with God. And with the children of God. You can be changed. But it takes repentance. It takes turning from your sin. And turning to God. Repenting of the fights and quarrels. Repenting of the warring passions. And when you do, seek him always. Seek him first. Satisfy yourself in him and not in the tawdry and trite things of this temporary place. Kill the warring passions and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, you who are glorified and exalted in majesty, Father, we pray right now that if there is there is source of selfish desire within us that has caused division, Father, we confess it. Father, if there is evil that has arisen in us that has brought disunity and dissension, Father, we confess it. For Father, we we're not called to be as the world is, but we are called to be who you are creating and conforming us to be Christ Jesus. Father, help us to understand these things. Help us to examine our lives. Father, may your spirit bring conviction and clarity about these things Lord, that we would honor you. Lord, that we would be a church fellowship that honors you father in heaven. We pray as well for those who don't know you. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come upon them and regenerate them. Father God, that they would see and understand the truth and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Lord God, that they would be saved. Father, we thank you for all of your grace towards us in Christ. We thank you for the mercy that you have richly poured out on us. Father, we thank you that you are slow to anger. God, we thank you that you are abounding in steadfast love and loving kindness and in faithfulness. And so we praise and worship you and you alone. And we pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son, O God. Amen.